Chapter One, Part One of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter One, by way of introduction, Part One The Diverging Streams. Thomas Jefferson, with his usual prevision, saw clearly, more than a century ago, that the American people, as they increased in numbers and in the diversity of their national interests and racial strains, would make changes in their mother tongue, as they had already made changes in the political institutions of their inheritance. The new circumstances under which we are placed, he wrote to John Waldo from Monticello on August 16, 1813, call for new words, new phrases, and for the transfer of old words to new objects. An American dialect will therefore be formed. Nearly a quarter of a century before this, another great American, and one with an expertness in the matter that the too versatile Jefferson could not muster, had ventured upon a prophecy even more bold and specific. He was Noah Webster, then at the beginning of his stormy career as a lexicographer. In his little volume of Dissertations on the English Language, printed in 1789 and dedicated to His Excellency Benjamin Franklin Esquire, LLD, FRS, late President of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Webster argued that the time for regarding English usage and submitting to English authority had already passed, and that a future separation of the American tongue from the English was necessary and unavoidable. Numerous local causes, he continued, such as a new country, new associations of people, new combinations of ideas in arts and sciences, and some intercourse with tribes wholly unknown in Europe will introduce new words into the American tongue. These causes will produce, in a course of time, a language in North America as different from the future language of England as the modern Dutch, Danish, and Swedish are from the German, or from one another. Neither Jefferson nor Webster put a term upon his prophecy. They may have been thinking one or both of a remote era, not yet come to dawn, or they may have been thinking with the facile imagination of those days of a period even earlier than our own. In the latter case, they allowed far too little, and particularly Webster, for factors that have worked powerfully against the influences they saw so clearly in operation about them. One of these factors, obviously, has been the vast improvement in communications across the ocean, a change scarcely envisioned a century ago. It has brought New York relatively nearer to London today than it was to Boston or even to Philadelphia during Jefferson's presidency, and that greater proximity has produced a steady interchange of ideas, opinions, news, and mere gossip. We latter-day Americans know a great deal more about the everyday affairs of England than the early Americans, for we read more English books, and have more about the English in our newspapers, and meet more Englishmen, and go to England much oftener. 
the effects of this ceaseless traffic in ideas and impressions so plainly visible in politics in ethics and aesthetics and even in the minutiae of social intercourse are also to be seen in the language on the one hand there is a swift exchange of new inventions on both sides so that much of our american slang quickly passes to london and the latest english fashions in pronunciation are almost instantaneously imitated at least by a minority in new york and on the other hand the english by so constantly having the floor force upon us out of their firmer resolution and certitude a somewhat sneaking respect for their own greater conservatism of speech so that our professors of the language in the overwhelming main combat all signs of differentiation with the utmost diligence and safeguard the doctrine that the standards of english are the only reputable standards of american this doctrine of course is not supported by the known laws of language nor has it prevented the large divergences that we shall presently examine but all the same it has worked steadily toward a highly artificial formalism and as steadily against the investigation of the actual national speech such grammar so-called as is taught in our schools and colleges is a grammar standing four-legged upon the theorizings and false inferences of english latinists eager only to break the wild tongue of shakespeare to a rule and its frank aim is to create in us a high respect for a book language which few of us ever actually speak and not many of us even learn to write that language heavily artificial though it may be undoubtedly has notable merits it shows a sonority and a stateliness that you must go to the latin of the golden age to match its highly charged and heavy-shotted periods in matthew arnold's phrase serve admirably the obscurantist purposes of american pedagogy and of english parliamentary oratory and leader writing it is something for the literary artists of both countries to prove their skill upon by flouting it but to the average american bent upon expressing his ideas not stupendously but merely clearly it must always remain something vague and remote like greek history or the properties of a parabola for he never speaks it or hears it spoken and seldom encounters it in his everyday reading if he learns to write it which is not often it is with a rather depressing sense of its artificiality he may master it as a korean bred in the colloquial anman may master the literary korean chinese but he never thinks in it or quite feels it this fact i dare say is largely responsible for the notorious failure of our schools to turn out students who can put their ideas into words with simplicity and intelligibility what their professors try to teach is not their mother tongue at all but a dialect that stands quite outside their common experience and into which they have to translate their thoughts consciously and painfully bad writing consists in making the attempt and failing through lack of practice good writing consists as in the case of howells 
in deliberately throwing overboard the principles so elaborately inculcated, or, as in the case of Lincoln, in standing unaware of them. Thus the study of the language he is supposed to use to the average American takes on a sort of bilingual character. On the one hand, he is grounded abominably in a grammar and syntax that have always been largely artificial, even in the country where they are supposed to prevail. And on the other hand, he has to pick up the essentials of his actual speech as best he may. Literary English, says Van Wyck Brooks, with us is a tradition, just as Anglo-Saxon law with us is a tradition. They persist not as the normal expressions of a race, but through prestige and precedent and will and habit of a dominating class, largely out of touch with a national fabric, unconsciously taking form out of school. What thus goes on out of school does not interest the guardians of our linguistic morals. No attempt to deduce the principles of American grammar or even of American syntax from the everyday speech of decently spoken Americans has ever been made. There is no scientific study, general and comprehensive in scope, of the American vocabulary or of the influences lying at the root of American word formation. No American philologist, so far as I know, has ever deigned to give the same sober attention to the sermoplebius of his country that he habitually gives to the mythical objective case in theoretical English, or to the pronunciation of Latin, or to the irregular verbs in French. End of chapter 1, part 1